electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The state of stocks is yet another star investor says a big decline is coming. Does Altimeter's Brad Gerstner agree? We'll ask him when he joins us for a halftime exclusive interview coming up. Also joining me for the hour today, the Investment Committee. Shannon Sakosh is here along with Jenny Harrington and Josh Brown. Check the market, see what we're doing here. Uh, it's another rough day for the NASDAQ. Uh, as you see, one and a quarter percent. That's a loss of 143. Dow is down by about 145. Yields uh, 346 on the 10-year. So, Josh Brown, I want to start with Apple. Why? Because the stock's down about 7% intraday from Monday's high. Right. It was 164. It's at 152. Uh, How concerning is that sign in and of itself to where the market may be going from here? Well, it's look, mathematically, it's an important weight in the market. And just because the stock is not acting well doesn't mean the rest of the market can advance. But um, given Apple's size and given its importance to so many different strategies, styles, indices, ETFs, Obviously, it's something that everyone has on their screen. It's the most widely held, probably most important stock on the planet Earth. Um, But I think the bigger issue here is the rallies that we've seen, including the historic uh, rally off the lows um, that ended in the middle of August, really remain counter trend. And, you know, I think a lot of times we we make this harder than we have to. Um, The Nasdaq 100, the triple Qs have been... Uh, in a bear market all year. The Nasdaq 100 has been below its 200-day moving average for 113 days in a row. Um, It's had four episodes where it's broken above that 200-day moving average and failed all four times. So that's obviously trading information, right? Being below a 40-week moving average for 36 weeks, okay, maybe more interesting to traders and investors, but the takeaway for investors should be that there's no rush to be buying into NASDAQ stocks. There's no reason to expect any more than a bounce when they're rallying so long as we're below this long-term moving average. It just doesn't seem that complex to me. And yet people keep getting surprised by it. You know, Shan, I'll talk about a surprising stat. According to S3 Partners, Apple's the new number one short in tables, in uh, the short interest league tables. Tesla was the number one for 864 days since April of 2020, Apple recently recapturing that crown. I'm wondering um, what that, I mean, that's clearly a, a statement of some sorts on where overall sentiment is in the market. But uh, again, people betting against what is the, has been the most loved stock in the market for quite some time. Well, not only is it not the mo- not is it only one of the most loved stocks, right? We're thinking about it in terms of something that Josh just brought up. Um, it is continued pressure on technology stocks. It is continued pressure on the perception, not the reality, but potentially the perception that large cap tech stocks are going to continue to suffer as expectations for an asymmetric increase in rates happens in the first quarter of next year. Um, I would argue, too, that the intersection of concerns about the U.S. consumer And perhaps even more importantly, the Chinese consumer, as we're waiting to exhale on when Chinese consumption is coming back, is where Apple sits in that intersection at that nexus of all of these concerns and considerations. The other challenge here is that you could just be seeing people take exposure off the table. If I'm looking at my standard, to Josh's point, very widely held stock, looking to take exposure off the table in in U.S. large caps in general, you've got a couple of choices, right? You've got Apple. Got Microsoft, Google. Um, you potentially have Tesla. Uh, you know, it's it's nice to see that people are taking that short off. Maybe it's because 
Musk isn't buying monitors um, for his employees to come back and use. Not sure. But I think this is where we're seeing the intersection of multiple trends. I don't necessarily think this will end. I think there, there will continue to be some pressure mm. on tech stocks. And mm -hmm. to Josh's point, haven't said that there is a big rush if yeah. we're looking at coming into the middle of no October. Yeah, you're not the only one um, because Jenny Funstrat's Mark Newton says growth is likely to weaken further into early October versus value. The broken trends uh, are there. It's likely vulnerable into October. He looks for a possible max S&P decline uh, near 3685. Uh, you know, not quite 300 points from here, but not far away from that either and should present a trading low into early October. What do you make of that call? I think it's plausible. I think maybe I just want to come back to Josh, too, again, though, which is the no rush and then couple that up with with what Fundstrat's saying, which is it's kind of all saying range bound. Right. And this is something that we're talking about. So he Fundstrat's saying around thirty six hundred. I'm seeing it as if, let's say we take two hundred thirty dollar earnings from next year, put sixteen and a half times on it. I put a floor of maybe like thirty eight hundred, but with emotions emotions widening out the range around there. So I think what it all adds up to is ultimately just a very range-bound market where these factors of good and bad are fighting against each other. Um, and some of the bad is that valuations are still high, and some of the good is that we can see the end of Fed rate hikes ahead, and we can see um, you know, maybe, maybe things in Russia and Ukraine getting better towards the end of the year, like maybe China gets better with vaccines and that would actually be positive for the global macro economy. So we've got a lot of things fighting them out. And then it comes back to range bound and no rush. And so I think as an investor, we've got something good working for us right now, which is we actually have the time to sit back and think. And as we're buying stocks and making investments, it's not a five alarm fire with everything. If you start to research a company, you know what? You can take the time to do that thoroughly unlike 2020 and a lot of 2021, where if you didn't make that decision very quickly, you could leave 20% on the table. Well, range so, bound, unless so range I, bound, I'm, I'm sorry, but range bound, um, unless you have mm -hmm. a much wider range that you're looking at. I mean, whether it's the Scott Minard call of 20% right. down mid-October, Ray Dalio uh, talking about a 20% negative impact on equity prices if interest rates continue to go up, Gunlock not fighting against that either in the conversation that I had with him uh, out in Huntington Beach, uh, largely because of the Fed. So you don't necessarily have, I mean, it's easy to say range bound, but a 20% decline from here is not range bound. Well, Scott, this if goes we're just, back to magnitude, right? And if we're just saying it's potential. Hold on, Josh, let Jenny finish. Jenny, go ahead then, Josh. Sorry. Okay, Sorry. we've been talking, thanks so much. We've been talking about magnitudes all year and magnitude of if I'm bearish, what's the magnitude of my bearishness? And so their magnitude is greater than mine. You know I'm a kind of twisted person when it comes to bear markets and investing. So I kind of hope they're right because if the market's down 20%, as a professional investor, I know that down 20% is an ephemeral moment in time. And what does that do for me? That puts things on sale. I heard a really great quote this week that's an old Shelby Davis quote, supposedly, right? So hopefully this is right. But it said that people make all of their money in a bear market. They just don't know it at the time. So if their magnitude of range is wider, fine. Just remember that when we're down 20%, you're not going to be down 20% forever. It will then start to crawl back up, even if it takes a while. Even the ones, Josh, who suggest we could go down to that degree, like Minard, would say if it goes down that much, I'll back up the truck myself. Um, it's just a matter of mm -hmm. whether you think stocks are going to actually have a big decline like that. Go back to retest the, the June lows because of tightening, whether the Fed's too aggressive or not, as Barry Sternlich suggests this morning on Squawk Box. As you heard on stage from our conversation out at your conference in, in California, this whole gunlock idea of oversteering by the Fed and what that ultimately means for stocks. It's an interesting idea. I think the Fed is like trapped by the headlines and really nothing that they've done has worked at all except in the stock market and the housing market. Like they have not actually been able to uh, impact prices. They've definitely been able to impact sentiment. So we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see if it's oversteering. I don't think that they can show signs that they, they are worried about oversteering, quite frankly, because if they go in that direction, it works counter their, to their interests. They're not gonna say the quiet part out loud, which is they need like a million people to lose their jobs. Like, no one's going to say that it's politically because there are huge social costs to layoffs and to higher unemployment. And it's so ugly. So no one's really going to say that. But that's like kind of uh, if you read between the lines. So 
It's a, it's just a it's a stupid situation they got themselves into, and uh, I don't know when they're going to get themselves out of it. But look, the idea that a 20% fall in the stock market is anything out of the ordinary, I think, is what we really should examine. We've got 94 years worth of data uh, using crisp data on drawdowns in the stock market. The typical peak to trough decline is about 16.9%. The S&P today is off 17% from its high, very much in line with what we've seen from drawdowns historically. 24 of those 90-some-odd years, we've had a 20% pullback in stocks. So that's like almost a third of the time. It would not be that strange for it to happen. I'm not rooting for it. I hope it doesn't. One thing I want to bring, though, to the show that um, I think Jenny might be very interested to hear we took a look at, like, all right, so if the growth trade's not working, then what should you be doing? Dividend aristocrats is one of the best places to be hiding out. There's a lot of different ways to look at companies that are consistently paying and increasing their dividend. We just, like, in a very simple way, took a look at NOBL. This is uh, the ETF that owns the dividend aristocrat index. And very quietly, not a lot of people know this, it has just pulled even with the S&P 500 on a three-year basis. It's outperforming on a one-year basis. It's getting awfully close, 65 versus 71 on a five-year basis. This is undoing a decade of FANG stock um, lunacy. These very boring, quiet companies, they're almost pulling even with that growth trade. We're not quite there on the 10-year number, but like people are saying, so what do I do now? Well, now you have a risk-free rate of return that's approaching almost 4%. It's unbelievable. Look at where the two-year is. And if you're feeling a little bit more adventurous, you can own things like dividend aristocrats. It's not that you'll have no volatility. It's that you don't have to sweat the Fed every minute of well, every that's day. Why so I think that there are opportunities here. Jenny is like the poster of that. That's why she's not sweating the Jenny market. Jenny is that, a dividend aristocrat. <laughs> I'm saying that, that, that's what I already, that, I already told you, Jenny, it, Jenny is the duchess of dividends. Yeah. We already we decided this. But this, this is precisely why <laughs> she has a, a she, she's not as negative as, as others are uh, on the market. Why she never gets yes. too upset about these moves in the market because her portfolio has been outperforming because her strategy, as you point out correctly, is working in this environment. And you're suggesting, Josh, and I'll throw it again to Jenny, is that it can continue to do uh, as such. Right. And I think it can. But, Scott, I just want to add on to something. The, re the real reason I don't sweat it right now is less because the performance of dividends is holding up. But I actually go back to a March of 2020 or the worst of 0809. And when you're a dividend investor, in those worst times and in times like now, you get to say to yourself or to your clients, hey, the, in the market's down a lot, things are ugly, but you know what? Your income is there and your income is safe. And this is where, where you want to look for things like dividend aristocrats. Now, a quick aside, but the dividend aristocrats and NOBL, those are great companies that have had dividends for a long time and that's a sign of, of um, corporate health, but actually the yield on that portfolio isn't dramatically more than the S&P 500. Those are just really big, long-term, old-school companies. Um, but yeah, so to me, the bigger place where I get zen in these moments is knowing that the market can be up, down, sideways. But if I'm promising you I'm pumping out a 5% dividend yield on your portfolio, that should come to you. And knowing that you've got the cash, it's just so critical in times like this. Yeah. Josh, I love that you brought up the statistics, too, on the history of dividends, because one of the things I've been thinking about is if you look at that on a 20-year period, everything outperforms and underperforms in different times. So we've underperformed for a while. Now we've had two years of dividends outperforming, and I think that can sustain. I don't know how long those cycles last, but extrapolate it further. If you're getting hurt a little bit right now and you're in the FANG stocks, you know what the reality is? Is If you stick with them for another five or 10 years, you're probably going to end up okay right. too. Let's do this. Um, those are let, good let, quality companies. Let me, um, let's just point out what the market's doing here, just noticing that um, it's a little bit worse than it was uh, about 15 minutes ago, 13 and a half minutes ago uh, or so for the Dow, which is now down 162. It's one half of 1%. Uh, NASDAQ's down a little bit worse, too. It's uh, more than 150 to the decline there. One and a third S&P now and even 1% at 3906. So it's flirting with that, that 3900 level again, which has been you know, somewhat a key technical level over the last many days. We need to keep our eye on that for the remainder of, of the day as well. We are just getting started. Of course, our halftime headliner is coming up next. It's an exclusive interview with Altimeter Capital's Brad Gerstner. 
And later, legendary play-by-play -play announcer Al Michaels joins us to talk his new role at Amazon Prime. Thursday Night Football kicking off tonight. Of course, Al's big into the markets, too. We'll talk to him about all of that, and we'll do it in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We got right across the board, uh, as you see. Let's bring in our halftime headliner now, Brad Gerstner. He's the founder and CEO of Altimeter Capital. It's a halftime exclusive interview. It's good to see you, man. Uh, can you hear me? I, I hear you. I, I see you tapping your ear like you can't hear. Can you hear all right or no? Hey, Scott. Right. We're having some uh, we're having some challenges today on your guys' video. I can't hear what you're asking me. Sounded like Zoom was having problems this morning with uh, the interview with Adobe, and I can't hear you guys using... Uh, uh, using Microsoft's products. So, All right. Uh, well, why don't we go to break and we can try to fix this? Why don't we do that? I'm pretty skilled at this, too. Uh, all right. He invests. He hosts. He does everything. He tosses to break. We'll be right back with Brad Gerstner of Altimeter. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're back. Technology is not exactly our friend today, but we're working on Brad Gerstner. We'll have it in a moment. Just bear with us. I promise she's coming up. Uh, in the meantime, Shannon, let's go through some of these moves you have. You bought Quest Diagnostics. Why? So we've been looking for some more healthcare exposure. Our top two sectors are technology and healthcare. Um, you know, versus investing in consumer staples, um, we like Quest. Uh, they have the opportunity. They're really one of two lab companies in the country. They continue to be able to scale up their enterprise. Um, and we think that there is also opportunity for them to improve margin because of the scale that they have. I think this has been caught up a little bit in terms of, you know, lower COVID tests, you know, not as many people. These labs are critical for healthcare facilities to be able to outsource to. Um, and this is a, you know, a stable company. I'd much rather have this from a defensive perspective um, than going out and buying uh, more consumer staples at this, in this environment. Okay, why'd you sell eBay? So this is a challenging stock for us. Um, you know, we talk a lot on here about our winners. Um, this is a loser for us. Uh, bought this back in 2021 and just realized that um, we were really looking at this as a transition story, being able to streamline some of their consumer product exposure, uh, being able to streamline on the strategy side. And it's just going to take them longer um, for these uh, efforts to materially impact the stock price in a, in a meaningful way. Um, and just decided that looking at this landscape, rather than having an underperforming consumer stock, much rather be able to add to to sectors that we think have a, a secular tailwind like healthcare. I find it interesting, um, given our conversation at the top of the program, some of the notes being passed around. You trimmed some Microsoft. 
getting a little skittish about big tech or perhaps even more so than you, you've already uh, kind of been lately, right? Yeah, we have, we were um, we're still meaningfully overweight technology. Um, but what we're looking to do is really create more of a diversified exposure. Our two biggest names uh, two years ago, Scott, were Microsoft and Apple. Um, and Microsoft, there's nothing execution-wise here that's making us concerned about owning Microsoft. Just looking at it in terms of if we're already overweight the sector, do we really need to be more overweight the sector? And more importantly, if I want to be able to add technology exposure in a tactical way with some of these sell-offs that we've been talking about, want to be able to have some additional capital to be able to do that. So this is more about mix of our technology rather than concerns about technology long-term. But again, I agree that over the next six weeks or so, tech is going to potentially be under more pressure. All right, I'm noticing a move today too in ChargePoint, Josh. I just bring it up because it's one of your stocks. Uh, we said it's a down day, decidedly so at this moment, but this one's up near 7%. Scott, one of the things that you want to do in down markets is pay attention to the stocks that refuse to go down. The solar stocks are in that category, and now the electric vehicle-related charging stocks are joining that party. All of these companies benefit greatly from the recently enacted legislation, $370 billion going toward climate change-related technology. And ChargePoint is, in my view, the leader currently and will stay the leader in electric vehicle charging stations. And the strategy is much different than its competitors. Um, they're not trying to own the station. They're allowing for the companies to own their own station. They're gonna provide the software, they're gonna get the annually recurring revenue model from, from users, and they're gonna make money selling the gear. It's a differentiated business model, it's a land grab. They're out there opening up charging locations with Starbucks, hotel chains, um, corporate fleets, you name it, and they're the biggest right now. So I think they'll keep that lead. The stock will continue to be discovered as the year goes on and more and more EV equipment is needed. Okay. Uh, it's now up uh, 8 and a third percent. Uh, so moving that stock a little bit as you, as you talk about one of your, uh, your holdings that you obviously like. Uh, all right, let's bring in Brad Gerstner now. Yeah. Uh, we, I think, have figured this uh, technology problem out. Are you there, Brad? Can you hear me okay? I'm here. <laughs> Bad day for Skype and Zoom, but uh, <laughs> yeah. hey. I'm glad we're uh, glad we're connected, Scott. Right, good to yeah. see you. It's been a minute too, so it's good to see you. I'm I'm glad you're back with us uh, at at this particular time in, in the markets too. Why don't you bring us up to date on your current view uh, of the markets? As I said, it's been a while since we've heard from you, so I'd love to hear it. Well, I'm, listen, I think you guys have covered it well. It's a period, as Stan Druckenmiller said last week, of peak uncertainty. Um, you know, we we were here a year ago and we basically said interest rates are near zero. They need to normalize, which means going back to two and a half or three percent. Multiples were very high because interest rates were low. Those needed to normalize. And here we are a year forward and they've largely normalized. But the world now is really scared that inflation is stickier than we thought, that rates need to go higher than we thought. So if you look at now what the market is forecasting, um, even though the one-year break-even on inflation is 2.4%, we're still talking about a 75 basis point increase, followed by a 75 basis point increase, followed by a 25. And the market's forecasting that we peak out somewhere around 4.4 in March. Um, and now we have this tension. Larry Summers is saying we're not going fast enough. We need to do another 100 basis points. And Gunlack and Sternlich this morning are saying, hold on a second here. There's a lag effect. The economy's slowing way faster than you think. Elon was tweeting about the deflation he's seen yesterday. And so I think the risk has shifted to uh, the Fed perhaps over-tightening, right? The economy has proven incredibly resilient. The market, frankly, I think is pricing things fairly. But now we're at this moment where we're looking to see, can the Fed get inflation under control to their satisfaction without rates having to go to 5 or 6%? Um, so that's our view of the world, that you need to have intellectual humility. If you need to make money over the next 90 days, it's a pretty treacherous place to be. But if you want to find great companies that you can compound in over the next three to five years, we think this is a very fair place to enter uh, those names compared to last fall that we all know the multiples were quite high. So if, if you're worried about the risk of a Fed over tightening or as you referenced a gun lock suggesting to me out in California of the Fed, in his words, oversteering, what's most interesting, I think, is that you told our producers in the in the conversations ahead of the show, you've been covering your shorts. 
So your positioning suggests that you see some decent entry opportunities either here or coming up? Listen, we've had massive volatility um, over the course of the last five months. It's a lot of up, a lot of down, and a lot of sideways movement at the end of the day. So, yes, we saw opportunities when companies like Snowflake were trading at $115, $120 a share uh, not long before earnings. We saw opportunities uh, to cover some of our shorts that were down 60 70 percent. Um, but we're talking about the ballast here. You know, we take 10 to 15 percent of our book and we say, listen, when the market is overshooting and panicking and the VIX is spiking, we're going to take off some of those shorts. We're going to add tactically to some of our longs. And on the other side, when we think the market is getting ahead of its skis, the S&P was not long ago at 4,300, we were selling some protection. Um, so, you know, that's a way that we're trying to, you know, move around this volatility. We're not making wholesale moves. You can look at our 13F, our largest position continues to be Snowflake. And so, you know, but that's a tactical way for us to manage exposure around uh, this moment of peak uncertainty. What about some of these other, uh, let's call them higher valuation, uh, growthier tech names that you've had in the past, a Roblox, for example. Uh, is there more pain ahead for those types of stocks as rates potentially go higher and then growth stocks have a problem? So if we telescope out, Scott, last year, there was no dispersion. All growth stocks went up equal. Uh, in fact, the further you were out on the risk spectrum, the more uh, you're, 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 the more inflation in the price that you had. And we talked about, you know, over the course of the last several quarters, the markets come in, we're seeing more dispersion. And so I think there's 70% of the companies that were in the growth complex that hit prices in 2021 that they'll never see again. They never deserve to be there in the first place. And then there are 30% of companies whose price was ahead of where they deserve to be because interest rates were near zero. But those companies over the course of the next two years, three years, will grind at much more fair valuations back into those prior peaks. And I would put Roblox in that category, a fantastic management team exploiting a terrific opportunity, starting to see reacceleration back in the numbers post-COVID. But late last year and early this year, we were hedging that position simply because we thought valuation had gotten ahead of itself. That's what we have to do as active managers, but I think the future is very bright for Roblox. Um, I think there are many companies, however, everybody expects this V-shaped recovery where companies are just gonna go back to prior highs, whether it's a Peloton, a Carvana, a Zoom, et cetera, go through those lists. Many of those companies, right, that people reference, I think will never get back to their prior highs. It takes a tremendous amount of execution and delivery and growth in order to grow into those prior multiples. So if we if we take that and then we sort of steer it to mega cap tech for a, a name like Meta, for example, um, is that in the 70 percent? We'll never see those highs again. Or is it a grinder, in your words, that's going to, you know, reset is probably what needed to happen in some respects and can get back to those prior levels? Well, Scott, as you know, I've been on your show many times where you've asked me about Meta and I think uh, uh, I probably defended their management and the biz model more than most. But I will say that I have grown quite frustrated. Um, I think they've done an absolutely lousy job of explaining this transition to the street. Um, here's a business that's doing $125 billion in revenue that's trading at six and a half times next year's EBITDA that's universally hated, right? And here we have a Goldman Sachs conference in San Francisco this week. Google's on stage exp explaining their business plan. Amazon's on stage, Snowflake's on stage, but Meta is absent. It's time for the new CFO, for Susan and for Mark to get out in front and explain to investors exactly what's going on. The prevailing view is that the business model is dead, that Mark panicked last fall, he renamed the company, that he's running around with AR, VR glasses on, and their best days are behind them. I think there's a, an alternative view here that this is like Google in 2011 or 2012, where growth begins to slow, here exacerbated by IDFA and COVID, and they're still spending as though they're a hyper-growth business. There's plenty of opportunity. They're spending $30 billion on CapEx, $15 billion on Reality Labs. There's a tremendous opportunity here to focus on fewer things, to drive more free cash flow to the business, to buy back shares, and to explain to shareholders why this is a terrific opportunity. 
Um, but the company's not doing that today. They have work to do. I've shared those feelings with the company. And I hope uh, I hope we'll see some change in uh, in the in the months and quarters ahead. But not not frustrated enough to sell the stock. We uh, you know, we're not selling the stock at six and a half times EBITDA when a company we believe is going to accelerate from basically zero percent revenue growth this year to mid teens revenue growth next year and expanding margins. So we think there's an easy story to tell. If, manage, if management chooses to follow that path and explain to investors, uh, but they have work to do. They've lost credibility. Um, they've lost a lot of their senior management team. Um, but I think they're one of those unique platforms on the planet. They have two and a half billion people who show up every month and use one of their services. And for as much as my friends lament, uh, you know, uh, Facebook, they're still using Instagram. They're still using stories. My kids are looking at reels. Uh, my mom's still using, uh, you know, Big Blue. I use predominantly WhatsApp as a communications platform. It's a powerful platform, very difficult to build with a lot of opportunity run by what I think is, you know, uh, a, a truly gifted founder and technologist. But we need to have better explanation to the street as to what their plan is and how they're going to uh, realize shareholder value. It's interesting to hear you, uh, you know, as critical as you are, because as you said at the outset here, uh, you have been as staunch a supporter of Meta, Facebook, Zuckerberg, team, Sheryl Sandberg, while she was still there as anybody that I've, I've ever spoken with at, at, from an investment standpoint. But when you're, you're saying gifted founder, technologist, uh, it brings me to a new position because I think it goes right to Elon Musk. I'm surprised somewhat, um, I don't know why, uh, to learn that you have a new position in Tesla. Can you tell me why you decided to buy that stock? Well, as you know, Scott, I, you know, we've covered energy storage. We've owned battery companies. We've covered Tesla for a long time. And and frankly, I was negative on Tesla in 2019, 2020, worried that the business was undercapitalized, uh, worried that they might go bankrupt. And, you know, and Elon himself has gone on Rogan and other places and said, you know, you were good to be worried because we were almost bankrupt multiple times. Um, but fast forward two years, the world has changed dramatically. Not only has their capitalization changed, right? Bankruptcy is totally off the table. But two things have dramatically changed. Number one, the world is moving now wholesale, wholesale, both for geopolitical realities and for energy realities in the direction of electrification. Um, we're only 8% penetration globally of electric cars. That 8% penetration is going to expand probably at a CAGR of 30 to 40% over the next five to 10 years. Global governments are now all behind this, doing the things necessary, whether it's charging stations, whether it's new investments in, in, in battery technologies, battery mining. The Inflation Reduction Act, while horrifically named as a piece of legislation, is a really potent piece of legislation to spur further development in energy storage and electrification. And when you look at Tesla, they have 30% margins. Their, their competitors are running 10% at best. And I think they have a compounding advantage in the world. So while we expect their share will stay at around 15% as we move forward, that's 15% in a massively growing market. And we think they're gonna be a much larger percentage of the profit pool in electric vehicles, in energy storage, et cetera. And so much like Apple represents a huge portion of the profit pool and a smaller share of actual units sold, we think Tesla is following that playbook um, and, you know, they built a company that, 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 that frankly, is extending its moat and extending its lead uh, versus the OEMs who are saddled with a bunch of ICE legacy. Do, do you have a view of, of whether he gets uh, Twitter or not? Do you, do you care as a now new Tesla shareholder, uh, which some have called uh, that whole drama, if you want to refer to it that way, as a distraction to Tesla, and there's also uh, obviously what's taken place with selling of, of some of those shares to help fund the purchase, assuming that this purchase happens. Um, well, I, I would say around my weekly poker game, we spent a lot of time uh, prognosticating what's going to happen at Twitter. Um, and, and as a user of Twitter and as a citizen of the Internet, I'm pretty appalled to see how they were managing uh, the company and managing risk to the company and managing, managing known threats on the platform. Um, you know, interestingly enough, you know, nobody's really had better relationships with government uh, than, than Elon. I mean, Elon had, you know, at, at a moment of crisis for our national space industry, 
um, you know, got a contract from NASA for a billion and a half dollars at a time that we thought astronauts were all going to have to learn how to speak Russian because we were paying Russia $82 million a year to take each astronaut to our space station, right? SpaceX, uh, you know, pioneered and partnered with and transformed the U.S. space industry. He's done the same thing in partnership with the government around Tesla. This isn't hero worship. This is just a statement of facts. And I think as a matter of national security, there's no doubt in my mind that he could clean up Twitter. He certainly pointed a spotlight on the deficiencies in, in Twitter. And I'm sure if I were on the board of Twitter, I would be hustling to fix the business, whether it included selling it to, to Elon or not. But I'll tell you this, um, you, you know, he, his focus on Tesla today and his focus on SpaceX today on conquering these important global challenges, I think, is his. Uh, is as uh, laser focused as it's ever been. I know, but you're talking about his this uh, alleged better relationship with with government. Um, he can't even get invited to the White House for an EV meeting. So, what does that say about the current state of his relationship to the degree that it's deteriorated with the government, where the arguably the most important person in that discussion can't have a seat at the table? Well, I, I, I forget what channel it was on, but Pete Buttigieg was on last week and, and said his name. So we're making progress. <laughs> um, but, you know, the reality is this government um, should be extraordinarily grateful for Tesla and for Elon Musk, not only what they've done for our space program, but what they've done to prod a global oligopoly that was stacked against electrification to move in the direction of massive change. Now this is universally accepted as uh, a, a de facto truth. It wasn't and it wouldn't have been without Elon. So I suspect that uh, future administrations, this one included, uh, will have a much more benign point of view, notwithstanding their disagreements over labor. The other company that's really come into keener focus lately is Uber. Um, have they turned a corner? Um, this free, this positive free cash flow, uh, which happened a few months back. Um, you know, Josh is in it. Jenny is in it. And I'm going to bring them in after your answer here. Uh, but is, is there a feeling that you have that they have turned a corner? Yeah, Uber sits in, you know, this intersection of beneficiaries of what uh, has gone on over the course of the last year in two important ways. Number one, they have a leadership team that's focused on free cash flow and they have a business that continues to produce innovative products and expand their lead as the market leader. So they're expanding share, they're expanding margins into a huge business recovery. So I think it's one of the simplest ways to play uh, the global recovery around business and business travel. Now, mind you, this business is going to go from break even to making three to four billion in free cash flow over a period of 24 months. So I think as that plays out, people are going to see the real value of the work that they've been doing. Mm. Um, you know, I would I would say the second thing here is, you know, Bill Gurley and I have, have talked a lot about this. Cheap money represents weapons of economic destruction. When SoftBank can throw money at money losing businesses where they can give discounts to drivers and riders, it destroys the marketplace. And so the economics that a market leader would expect to harvest aren't there. Now that money is hard to come by, we're seeing tremendously more rationality among all the global participants from India to Brazil to Mexico. Remember, this is a global footprint that Uber has. It's a verb in all these countries. It's a market leader or a second place participant, not only delivering people, but delivering things, delivering all things that will come from local e-commerce, including food. Um, listen, Dara's taken a, a, a lot of criticism running that business. I think some of it deserved because the fact of the matter is we did continue to spend into the teeth of this. Um, he knows that this is the moment um, you know, to put that company back on the right footing. I think he's making the right mm -hmm. decisions. Uh, we're super encouraged by the, the quarter they just had. And I think when you look back at the next eight quarters, they are the make or break quarters, but I think they're going to make it. And I think this will prove to be one of those resilient growth stocks that comes out of this period much stronger. Mm -hmm. The network effects really starting to show their stuff uh, because this period of easy money is coming to an end. want to want to let Josh uh, ask a question because I know he has one. And then I want to talk to you about tech valuations overall uh, in light of that Adobe deal today. Josh? Hey, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. I think that point that you made about cheap money being so corrosive is so important and, and really like uh, not, not understood well enough. The question like, what, why, do, why is there a high correlation with rates going up and value stocks outperforming? Well, those are incumbents that 
their advantage gets gets worn away when venture capitalists can walk into a market and say, what's the best service or what's the best product in the market? Tell you what, give it away for free for five years. Let's build a big user base. When those games stop, you see high quality companies. And Uber actually very specifically said a lot of our competitors in different markets are backing down because they're not going to get to scale because the spigots have been turned off. So I'm really glad you made that point. I want to ask you about Snowflake very quickly. Um, at their own, uh, I'm on the sidelines with this one. I'm looking for a reason to get in. At their own uh, user conference, I guess, they laid out a $10 billion annual revenue run rate goal for 2029. They said that they would be able to expand the TAM to like $250 billion by 2027. And they're talking about uh, getting cash flow, I guess getting margins up to 25 from 15%. Do those goals seem realistic? And then if they could do it, how much room is there to make money given the current valuation today of like 60 billion? Like, could this be a $150 billion company over the next seven years? Is that reasonable? Well, Josh, thanks for the question. I think you're spot on on Uber. Congrats on the conference last week. I saw Scott tweeting, you know, these fine pictures from, I don't know, it looked like Manhattan Beach. I'm not sure you guys did any work. But, you know, when I think about Snowflake, listen, it's commonly referred to as a data warehouse. And I think that people just need to, you know, that will undermine how you think about this business. Snowflake has clearly emerged as a fourth cloud. Think of it as the data layer that sits on top, the data cloud that sits on top of AWS, on GCP, on uh, on, uh, on Azure. Um, you know, they have clients now that are paying them upwards of 50 million a year and contracts being signed for over 100 million, right? You only get that type of scale is if you're a super important piece of the superstructure of the substrate for the biggest clients in the world, whether they be, you know, the Apples or the Nikes or the Walmarts or the Goldman Sachs, et cetera. Um, you know, so that's the position they occupy. The database market in the year 2020, 22 years ago, had an enterprise value of $1 trillion, okay? Think about all the data created every year. Think about every one of those workloads moving into the cloud and think about Snowflake being part with these other hyperscalers who are really focused on storage and compute. Snowflake being a part of that new infrastructure, that's $2 trillion of annual spend. So I'll be the first to say, and I said on your air, not all software companies are created equal. There are a lot of companies trading at three times revenue that deserve to trade at three times revenue. A multiple of of revenue, remember, is just a proxy for some future multiple of free cash flow. So if we look at, at, at Snowflake's 2025 free cash flow multiple, and we use a pre-COVID average multiple, we get to about a double, two and a half X from where we are today. Reasonable people can disagree. I think that their target they put out there relative to the growth rates we're seeing in the market Mm -hmm. is kind of laughingly conservative. But we'll see how that changes. They have to execute. There's a lot of competition in the market. Um, If somebody said to me, you know, 200 bucks today or 199 bucks, do I have to buy Snowflake today? I think Snowflake is fairly priced today. I think it's going to compound, you know, at a really high rate over the course of the next couple of years. Um, I think when it was trading at 115 or 120 bucks and everybody was panicked about consumption models, et cetera, it was a ridiculous gift. Mm-hmm. Um, but today we're trading at about a 20% discount to the five-year average. Why does that make sense? And this is the pre-COVID average. That gotta- makes sense because interest rates are higher than they were during that period of time. So given the uncertainty in the world, um, you know, we think this thing is is pretty fairly priced, but going to be a, a tremendous compounder over the course of the next five years. I got to go. But um, real quick, um, this Adobe deal for Figma, does it say anything about broader valuations or is it a special situation when you can do a Series E at 10 billion last year and you sell for 20 billion? You invest that late and you still pull off a double. What does that say, if anything, about where we are? Well, in terms of that, I think it's an N of one of late stage deals that doubled over the course of 12 months. And Dylan, uh, the founder of this business and CEO of this business, I mean, I I tried to be a shareholder here many times. It's a phenomenal company. Um, It's probably the right thing for Adobe to do. And frankly, they wouldn't sell for any less than 20 billion because the future is extraordinarily bright for the business and it's going to be much bigger in the future. So I actually think it's probably the right thing for Adobe. Adobe should have bought it earlier. Adobe should have done some better things to innovate, but they are where they are. 
So now I think it's the best map. In terms of what it says about where we are in software, remember this. So the movement of all data to the cloud and applications built on that is the biggest super cycle in the world today. I think it's bigger than what I saw in the internet itself in 2000 to 2005. We hosted a dinner last night with 10 founders building applications in the data cloud, right? These founders in 2003 would have been showing me websites to put on Google. Instead, they're showing me applications to put on Snowflake and AWS. The future of the world is going to be about putting all data into the cloud and then leveraging machines for humans to make better decisions with that data. We talk about mm -hmm. ML and AI, that is the manifestation of it. Um, Snowflake's benefiting from it. All the hyperscalers, including Microsoft, are benefiting from it. And Figma is an incredible application that's going to ride these rails um, to help businesses, you know, uh, create the future. Yeah, Figma founders are feeling good today, uh, broadly. Uh, it's good to see you as always. It's good to talk to you, Brad Gerster. We'll see you soon. Great to see you, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right, you as well. Thursday Night Football kicks off tonight, streaming on Amazon Prime with Al Michaels calling the play-by-play. -play. The veteran sports broadcaster joins us next. We're right back. Oh, the NFL's Thursday night schedule kicks off tonight on Amazon Prime, the first time a streaming service will air a season-long package of games. And while it may be new territory, a familiar voice will be calling the action. Broadcasting legend Al Michaels doing play-by-play, -play, along with Kirk Herbstreet. Al joining us now. It's good to see you again. Welcome back. You know, we've been doing this every year, the start of a game, you know, the start of a season. Uh, last few years on NBC, they are dragging me, Scott, <laughs> from the analog world into the digital world, but I'm ready. I'm excited. Here we go. And it's going to be a great game tonight. Kansas City hosting the Chargers. Yeah. You've got Mahomes. you got Herbert. What a way to begin. You, you got a good one, uh, no doubt. And we miss you in the family. Uh, I, let me say that up front. Um, but aside from having to teach somebody else how to do the slide into the broadcast, like now he's got it, Herb Street's got to do the Collinsworth slide. It, do, is it going to feel any different for the person who's actually calling the action or no? I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. None of us are. And remember, we have Fred Goodelli producing. He's been the Sunday night producer for the last 16 years. It's been the number one show on television for 11 years. So it doesn't get any better in the truck. We have a lot of the same people who provided the production on uh, on Sunday night over those years. So there's a lot of familiarity here. It's just it, it's a it's a different template. We're coming across the Rockies, as I say, in broadband, not in a covered wagon. But, you know, the game is going to look like the game and we're going to do it uh, as well as we can and, and tr you know, try to enhance it. And you don't reinvent any wheel here, Scott. What you do is try to tweak it and just make it a little bit better week after week. And that's what we plan to do. I'm looking at some of that now, some of this new technology, this uh, X-ray instant access to real time stats, next gen stats, player tracking. I mean, it's it's trying to be a fully immersive experience for, for the fans. There's no question about it. And there's alternate feeds as well. Uh, I think we have uh, that group, Dude Perfect. They'll be doing an alternate feed. And the only thing that scares the hell out of me, Scott, is the fact that if they get a higher rating than we get, <laughs> I'm going to be in big trouble. But there, there are different ways to watch the game. There are different platforms you can use inside of our platform. So uh, it's, a, it's a work in progress. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm excited because it's different. It's new. It's something that... Uh, is this going to be the future? Well, we're going to know in a few years for sure. We'll be watching. I'm sure others will be, too. Uh, let's talk to markets in the short time that I have left with you, Al, because I know how much you like that. What, what's your investing strategy <laughs> right now? I'll tell you what it is. Number one, wear a blindfold. And number two, take all the cash I have, put it in cans, and bury it in my backyard. I'm scared to death. And that's why I watch you guys all day long. I, I hated Tuesday. I loved yesterday. And today is it's getting a little bit better right now as I'm watching the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any question uh, for Josh about strategy moves? Have you have you seriously done anything in the market lately? Not lately, but Scott, I'm all ears, baby, like Ross Perot. Tell me, tell me, tell me. We've said it on, on all these occasions that Josh is your unofficial financial advisor. So, Josh, go ahead. Al, you're, uh, I'm assuming in the high tax bracket, and I'm assuming your main residence is in a high tax state. If you Correct. look at 
if, if, okay. So if you look at a portfolio of muni bonds right now on a tax equivalent basis, yields are approaching like 5.9, let's call it 6%. Um, if you had asked me for 6% in munis any time over the last 10 years, I would have had to apologize. That really, I think, gives stocks some heavy competition for people in, you know, in a certain age group, in a certain distance from true retirement. I hope you never retire, but that would be something that I would urge you to take a hard look at. It won't be as exciting as trading the 3X leveraged ETFs, but it's way better than putting the money in cans in your backyard. I, I hear you, man, and, and, and you're right on, you're spot on on that. But you know what? You get to cer a certain point in your life, and you know this, Josh. I mean, to me, long-term investing, yeah. next Thursday. <laughs> yeah. You and a lot of other people. <laughs> Al, uh, you're, you're the best no matter where you're broadcasting the games. Uh, we can't wait to see you. It's good to see you again on this program again. Love the show, guys. Love it. All right. Keep it going. All right. You be well. That's the great Al Michaels joining us today. Final trades are next. Got a good one in OT. Uh, three hours from now, 4 o'clock Eastern time. Dan Greenhouse with me on set. Uh, the fund manager, Avery Sheffield, is back. Plus, we have a broadcast exclusive today with Mamoun Hamid of Kleiner Perkins. He's an early investor in that deal today with Figma. Uh, we'll talk about what it says about valuations in the Valley, the deal environment. He was also the co-founder of Social Capital with Chamath Palihapitiya. So we'll talk about that as well. And I hope all of you will join me at 4 o'clock Eastern today. Let's do final trades. Jenny, you are up first. Okay, this is a cool one, Ardaw Metals. I bought it a few months ago. Right now it's got a 5%, sorry, a 7% dividend yield, and it is trading down from where I bought it. It, was, it came public through a SPAC structure, so over the last few weeks as all those got hate again, the share price traded down, now you get to get in at a cheap price, great yield. Okay, Shan? Intuitive Surgical. 2% uh, of surgeries are done uh, via robotics now. Uh, automation is coming to manufacturing, but also to the healthcare industry. Okay, and finally, uh, Josh Brown. AOS stock came down with housing, but 70% of their business is replacement. It's, it's wrong. I think the stock's way too cheap. You own it? Oh, yeah. All right. That's uh, AOS there uh, from Josh Brown. All right. I hope all of you will join me, as I said, in overtime in just a few hours' time. We'll see what the market does, whether it's still down S&P. The Dow has actually recovered its losses, too. Uh, the exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.